This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The fight against hate in American schools is most intense in the suburbs. Are suburban teachers ready for it? Plus, LeBron James opens up a public school in his hometown. Our teachers say the operative word there, public. Conservative groups are trying to convince teachers to drop their union membership in the wake of a big Supreme Court decision. Our resident union rep says good luck with that. All that plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer, and we're back from summer for season three. I'm very glad that you could join us. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are probably working a little harder than they were a week or two ago. Let's introduce them. Luann Fox, what do you teach? Hi, I teach high school English. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach students at the elementary program in the alternative school. And David Muhammad, he's joining us by phone because he has to do a little bit of babysitting at home. But David, what do you teach? I teach high school economics and international relations. So David, Luann, Rebecca, all three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, at this point, we've heard all the stories, maybe even experienced something like them. A swastika found scrawled on a bathroom stall. Someone shouts, go back to Mexico in the hallway. Students spontaneously break out into chants of build that wall at an assembly. There is the sense among many educators that such incidents are on the rise ever since Donald Trump entered the White House. And now there is some quantitative data to add to this discussion, which we've been having off and on for years now. Education Week, partnering with the nonprofit news organization ProPublica, has documented 472 what it's calling hate-related incidents that have occurred in schools between the start of 2015 and the end of 2017. And as this new school year dawns, we wanted to get a survey from our teachers about how this issue is still playing out in their schools. And I want to frame this discussion around one particular aspect of this report that was published by Ed Week and ProPublica that I found interesting. Um, That is... Students in suburban schools are the likeliest to report being the target of hateful words or a hateful act. That's according to federal statistics from before the Trump administration. But in fact, in Ed Week's own data, they found that the rate of hate-related incidents was highest in suburban schools compared to rural or urban schools. So this is generally thought to be because suburban schools are the most diverse, the most heterogeneous. And um, we just so happen to have three teachers who teach, I guess you could say, in suburban settings of one kind or another with varying different demographics on their student bodies. But let me just throw this question out there first to you all. Is it fair to say that suburban schools are a front line of sorts in dealing with hate in schools? Yeah, I I think what happens with suburban schools, while they're diverse, they're a lot more segregated in their diversity. Like, for instance, in my school, we have 34 black students. Well, how does that look out of 1,800 kids in total? You know, I mean, we may have 100 or so Latino students. So then those kids tend to stay with the kids who look like them. And so even though they're all around each other, they're not really integrating. If I put a black kid in the middle of the room, does that make a diversity? And so unless there's like active conversation, along with the fact that most teachers, especially of this generation, haven't been trained to 
one, root out microaggressions within the students, but even within themselves. So there's a lot of like um, implicit bias of teachers towards kids. And so that replicates as well. And yeah. so a lot of the negative energies that are um, practiced in the school aren't being pushed away by the very authority that should be trying to educate the kids outside of it. So sometimes in the suburban schools, we have the kumbaya mindset, but we don't necessarily actually address the issues. We kind of like sugarcoat it with the fact that like, oh, look at all this diversity, and there's not really any integration. Where our our kids are concerned, they've had eight years in their formative, you know, growing up, right? I I teach 16 and 17-year-olds, and they've seen a black man be president and all things that come with that. Now that they're, like, conscious of what's going on in the world, they're seeing, like, someone who looks like them, these white students who are mostly the population in suburban schools, and it's sort of this, like, resurgence of, now I see someone who looks like me, like, when I get old, right, And, and crotchety and that kind of thing. So that's one thing. But another thing is that Trump as the sort of like reality TV star president has has really capitalized on the say what you feel kind of thing and letting decorum really go by the wayside. So whatever feelings that were happening that that we tamped down because it's not part of civil discourse when we were raising students to be good citizens, that's just really ebbed away because Trump has torn that down and, and just said what he feels. So, and do you do you have white students who either whether they say it explicitly, like evince some kind of pride for having a white man in the White House? Certainly. After November the 9th, it was an issue in my in my school, and, and I'm sure many suburban schools everywhere, but it was definitely an issue where we had to, you know, administratively deal with, like, what's going to happen when we have hot tempers on either side of the issue now that Trump has been declared well, and what president. But what did that look like? So, I mean, if, if It whites... looked like three black students uh, outside my door saying, I don't want to do school. I'm done. It's over. And I'm like, you got to show up. I'm showing up to work. So, yeah, you have to still show up. You can't give up. It looked like white students with MAGA hats uh, waving them in the hall and just what David would say, you know, are microaggressions, but like edging onto bigger things, um, big enough for our administration to have to, you know, call attention to it, do it on the PA, send letters home, be like, we're going to settle people down because like we're about education. We're not about. How is a, a student who expresses support and, you know, maybe even pride for Donald Trump wears a MAGA hat? or has a MAGA bumper sticker on her car when she drives to school. How is that different from, you know, a student four years ago having worn, you know, a Barack Obama Hope shirt to school? I think it's the energy in which they do it. If you compare when Obama got in, there was a sense of pride and desire for moving forward, not only as a country, but as a humanity. I think when I see people wearing the MAGA hats and, and put a Trump bumper sticker, it's more of a defiance, a more of a like, you can't tread on me, look at what I'm doing in your face kind of mentality to the point where I wonder, like, do they really care about his politics and are they more so just happy they have an excuse to be arrogant? It's aggressive. Elitist. It's, I mean, yeah, it's an, yeah, it's an aggressive, aggressive like, it's like, 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 I dare you say something. It's an yeah. aggressive <laughs> kind of, it's so much more divisive than 
we're all in this together. We've now got an opportunity. Let's do this thing. That but we is there done. a – as we're talking about Trump, I do want to bring it back to this uh, this report that was published by Ed Week in ProPublica. So they found 472 incidents between 2015 and 2017. So that spans before and after the Trump administration. But in their reporting, um, again, these incidents were corroborated by news accounts and, and verified accounts that they – went and sought out. The single day on which the most incidents occurred in this reporting period was November 9th, 2016, which was the day after Trump was elected. Still, there is an education researcher and former Obama administration official quoted in this piece cautioning against putting too much responsibility on President Trump. She's quoted, if we scapegoated on the president, we are overlooking the broader climate issues that were there before and will likely continue if not directly addressed, end quote. What do you think of that? Um, Is it is it too reductive just to put it on Trump, or is there a danger in putting too much responsibility on on the president? I, I think they've I think they've hit that right on the head. Mm-hmm. You cannot make him responsible for what is clearly bigger than than he is, and I think that that you've got to go back to recognizing that cultural competence, talking about microaggression, understanding our role when we bring mm-hmm. these groups together. White privilege Mm -hmm. existed well before Trump, but I remember a time when white privilege wasn't a thing that would be known by your average person as a term, uh, accepted or rejected. Besides, it's just known what it is. And and you can't say that now it's not a thing that's not in our consciousness. It's certainly argued about, but it's a it's it's a present thing that we talk about. And so we have made progress that way with uh, teaching students more about it. Uh, David, you mentioned yeah. earlier that you're, um, you see a lot of your colleagues or a lot of people who staff suburban schools are not necessarily prepared to deal with these, the, these interracial uh, conflicts. In, in what ways? What does that look like on the ground? You have an era of teachers who were taught by the really Bridges concept of like not to see color and like, you know, all kids are all kids. And I think that on the surface, that sounds great. But when a generation of teachers are taught that, it leaves out the disparities. You can't talk about poverty in schools and not talk about how poverty is connected to race. I think that with young teachers coming up a lot, it's all about either curriculum or testing. And then those human aspects get pushed to the back because it's like, well, we don't have time to talk about that. Or I'm not supposed to worry about that because all kids matter. You know, I just got to tell myself, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see race. I see, I see all kids. And you do them a disservice. When you do that, and I think it's because they're uncomfortable bridging that, you know. And, and you have to re- look at the reality too. Most teachers in this country are—it's dominated. It's a field that's dominated by white women, you know, at the teaching level and in administration is white males, you know. So they've never had to really have that conversation. So, uh, Rebecca Luann, two white women. I, I think that's absolutely <laughs> the case. We don't look yeah. like the students we teach. That's true. So talk about it's so a, talk about your own personal experiences. A, well, it's trying a, to to come to terms with that. I think it's a huge step for us now as as a profession to be talking about that. The problem you run into, though, inherently is now it's the other. It becomes this otherness. I have to learn this other, and it, it puts everybody out of their comfort zone. And and then David's exactly right. Our our teachers, our new teachers, and even our veteran teachers. We came in to do a different job, and now the job requires more of us. Parse that a bit. What do you mean you, you came in to do a different saying. job, and now the job has changed? What, what was the job that a lot of teachers came in to do, and, and, and now it's different? It was pedagogy. You were, mm-hmm. We were going to talk about subject. We were going to talk about language and writing and music and, yeah. and art, and we were going to talk about history, and we were, going to, we were going to put the knowledge out there. And now we talk about 
cultural sensitivity. We talk about trauma-sensitive training. We talk, We have to unpack our background and how that affects what we're what curriculum we're delivering. And our, perhaps the biggest shift since we've been teaching has really been the advent of social media as the carrier of mm-hmm. all information, pretty much. I mean, we've just we've never lived through something like this before, and I think that's been the biggest game changer of all. You know, you, you've got a, a student who has a piece of hate speech or or writes something or puts a swastika on, and that thing goes viral. Um, a teacher puts up a Confederate flag somewhere in America, and that's going to go viral. I mean, like, the, the windows that we have on absolutely everybody all of the time, so that, it's undeniable. That's a, so that's a good point. So as I was preparing for, this, preparing for this, I was thinking, you know, and kind of reading about some of these incidents in this Ed Week report, you know, I, I think they, they totaled it up. Out of these 472 incidents, more than a quarter of them were incidents involving some kind of graffiti. You know, there was a, it was a swastika written on a bathroom stall. Mm. And I was thinking back to when I was a student, you know, I remember finding swastikas like carved into a desk, you know, by someone a previous year. But like what you're saying now, Luann, is that if that happens now, I could take it as a student, I could snap a picture of it, post it to Twitter or Insta or whatever, and the whole nation knows about it. Uh, Right. Graffiti, to me, feels just kind of impulsive, not particularly directed at an individual. Where do you draw the line between this is—it's hateful, uh, but it's also—it might just be like teenage stupidity or or childhood Mm. ignorance. No, I think it has shifted because maybe where it would have been that for you and and perhaps for us, you know, when we were in school, I think now it's a method of—it's a a way to communicate. It's a way to code— yeah, I think, too, well, I, I think it's both. I mean, yeah, okay, it's stupidity and it's ignorance, but there's also hate behind it. And when they're sitting there doing that, that active, you know, idea, it's not like it's an impulse statement. It's you carving that into a desk, you writing it, you know, you saying something that you heard and you know exactly what it means. But that says something, that either says something to the climate or about an individual, but... We can't discredit it as this, you know, silly teenager behavior because that's how stuff slips through, you know, the cracks. And then you look up on their 20 and they still have the same ideas and it didn't get checked. One final question I wanted to, to ask you all before we move to a different segment. So in situations like this, when we're talking about offensive things being said or done, microaggressions, is there an unfair onus that's put on the students of color who are in these schools? who are more directly impacted by this, like an onus of having to deal with it, of having to say something, of having to um, express their anxieties and their fear, and not an onus on the the white students who are perpetrating it. I believe that's true, yes. Yeah, I mean, in my classroom, um, I'm going to have a student of color, maybe two, perhaps in the whole classroom, and I'm talking about a, a class full of like 28 students or so. So... Yeah. Um, the times that I've interviewed and talked to students about race when I've become more comfortable with them over the course of the year. I mean, we've just started a new year. So, I mean, the profile is the same, but I just I don't know any of my students at all well enough to to talk to. It becomes a fine line for the students of color, because like on one hand, yeah, they have opinions and you want to acknowledge them. But then it's also like, is that too much pressure to put on them? Right. To like speak for the entire race. They not they might not have the maturity to speak well, and so then it's misinterpreted, or it comes out with emotion, so they speak out of anger, out of hurt, 
And so then people would just say, oh, they're just mad, or they don't, you know. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm mad because it's been going on for a long time, and I don't know how to express it because I'm 14, I'm 15, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know why I'm frustrated, but I do know that every time it's a slavery union, everybody comes, turns around and looks at me. Or when it's, you know, Huckleberry Finn or whatever, and the N-word is said, I cringe, and I can't explain that, you know. Or whatever else it is, I play a sport and kids make jokes about me being able to run high, run fast and jump high. And I've been hearing that forever. And it's, and you touch my hair in the hallway and it's just over and over and over. And so I'm, I burst out of emotion and I can't explain it, express it because I'm too young to really understand what's happening. So I think sometimes we put stuff on their shoulders. They're not ready to have here. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, you may have heard basketball superstar LeBron James opened a school in his hometown of Akron, Ohio. According to Time magazine, the I Promise School, that's I Promise School, is quite an operation. Free bikes for students, gardening and yoga seminars, GED classes for parents, social wraparound services for families. Graduates of the school will eventually be able to attend the University of Akron for free. Maybe predictably, I Promise has quickly become an exhibit for both sides in the ever-evolving debate over education reform in America. Some law James's school for appearing to follow the no-excuses blueprint of successful charter networks like KIPP and Achievement First. Namely, it has longer school days and years, a serious focus on teacher professional development, STEM-themed curricula. Others point out I Promise is fully public, part of the Akron Public Schools system as Education professor Jonathan Collins put it, that makes a statement about democracy in a divided America. Well, we just wanted to touch upon this because it was such big education news recently. What, what do you think about LeBron James's I Promise School? Good, bad, indifferent? What do you got? I'll go first on this one. I think this is great. Mr. James has done a great thing here. And I think the, the key that you have to focus on, that, that it's a public school, And he went to his public school and he worked with the board and he worked with that community and he said, what do you need? What can we make better? And it's not about the bikes and it's not about the uniforms and it's not about it. It it is about that social wraparound services you mentioned, Kyle, that that's what's going to make this school successful, that there's a food pantry and the parents will have job resources and all of this, the healthcare piece that's there, all of this, this neighborhood inclusive the support network he's he's allowed them to put in place is is going to be amazing. I hope that it it frees up other boards to say we can be creative. We can do this in a different way. This 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 building is just for third and fourth graders. This is a whole other way to combine kids and deliver instruction. So mm-hmm. I hope people look at it and see it as a way to develop partnerships and be creative and and to think something different and then and then experiment with it. I want to add that reading the comments that people had written online about this was was interesting. They were they were very heated on both sides, it appears. And one of the comments against it seems to be um, because the the way I understand it, instead of the lot the the people choosing the school, the school is going to choose the students who are the ones who are in most need. So the way 
the the criticism goes is if my student's not scoring low enough, my student my student doesn't get the bike, my student doesn't doesn't get to get in, so I can just fix that by not having my student try in public schools. So so we can go with this one, which is just sort of I mean, not really, I think, the way to think about it. It would be nice if we could give this a couple of years without so much criticism just to see if doing something different is doing something better. Yeah. A lot of the things, how I Promise is described, remind me of, uh, and you may or may not be familiar with this, the Harlem Children's Zone, opened by Jeffrey Canada in Harlem. Not a public school, per se. It was was more of a a public charter institution, uh, but had a lot of the same wraparound services, kind of like cradle to, I don't want to say grade, but cradle to college kind of services for, for students and their families. Will it be fair, regardless of, of, of how I Promise does good or bad, Is it will it be fair to judge other public schools by how I Promise does? Because it is a public school. I think the piece there, and, and you make a nice comparison there, with because the Harlem Zone was also done in partnership with local neighborhood schools. They're not part of the system, but they, they went and they had conversations, how can we make this fit? Uh, in a lighter vein, before we go to another topic, um, if you could have one celebrity open up a school in their image, <laughs> um, who would it be and why? Okay, think about this for a combo. <laughs> okay. Bob Rossi and Bill Nye, right? So then you've got the happy little trees, but then you've got the science as well, and they're like in partnership together. <laughs> Bill Nye would have an amazing school. There you go. So I a like Bob that. Ross, Bill Nye yeah. school for Luann Fox. It's like an arts, arts <laughs> okay. meets Mine, science. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was arts as well because when Lin-Manuel Miranda calls and starts his school, I will leave you all. <gasps> oh. Just because I feel like that would be an amazing place. Um, you probably follow him anywhere, though. He's awesome. Yeah. He hasn't yeah. called yet. I don't know why. Um, and I think Ellen DeGeneres would do a nice job as well. Yeah. I agree. Uh, David, any uh, hope of, of particular celebrities to open a, a school? Jay-Z and Beyonce. <laughs> I don't even know if they'd do a good job. It's just, it'd be cool to say I teach at Jay-Z and Beyonce. Uh, well, moving on um, to another topic. It's been two months since the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark decision, Janice v. Ask Me, dealt a major blow to public sector unions. The decision bars unions, including teachers' unions, from deducting so-called agency fees from non-members within a bargaining unit for the purpose of collective bargaining. We can redefine that um, because we do have a union expert at the table, but that's basically what the decision does. Uh, Labor experts have predicted this could lead to a substantial drop in teacher union membership in the 22 states that um, have allowed agency fees. And that could have a broader negative ripple effect for teachers unions nationwide. Now, the campaign is on to get teachers to leave their unions. NPR reports that several conservative and libertarian-leaning groups have started aggressive outreach efforts, including social media ads, direct mail, door-to-door campaigns, to convince teachers to drop their union membership in the wake of Janus. This conversation will involve all three of our teachers at the panel today, but we should point out Rebecca McIntosh is a longtime union leader in Missouri and is... Uh, usually a voice we go to when talking about union issues. And uh, wanted to start with you, Rebecca. And I should say, I talked with you and two of your NEA colleagues uh, who are in other states uh, back in June, right after the Janus decision. All three of you were actually in Minneapolis at the time for the NEA National Conference. Um, At that time, I will say you were fired up, optimistic even. Um, It was literally within, I think, 48, 72 hours after the decision. So you all were we're ready for a fight, and you're all together. Now it seems like the fight is here. I, I wonder what are you thinking now, and, and what are you – yeah, what, where game, are you at? The game is on. The game is on, and we are as fired up now as we were 
four weeks ago. This is what teachers do best. I mean, you look at bad behavior and then you recorrect course and, <laughs> and you correct course and then you do some reteaching and you move forward. People are fired up. The response has been tremendous. We've seen that in the activist states from earlier this year. We saw it pre-Janus. We see, we're seeing it now post-Janus just in the few weeks since we've had the decision. The, the groups that are coming after us are not having great success. There's been a lot of social media sharing. People are aware that what's happening. And there's been some pretty slimy stuff. Uh, Freedom Foundation is taking things out of context. They're, they're uh, putting members' information out there in, in social media. Um, and it, it's just not playing. It's not spinning, I think, the way they thought it would. So there you go. Yeah, so I wonder, especially for Luann and David, I mean, Rebecca is in the weeds on this. Her Sorry. her, uh, no, her, no, her union cards are, have been on the table for a long time. I guess for Luann and David, you are, um, you can you can tell me if you're part of a union, but I guess how does this decision and this conversation post-Janus affect how you view union membership in the teaching ranks? When I've talked to my people who are more uh, involved with unions than just on the periphery, one of the things that they'll talk about is that, you know, you get a crop of new teachers every year and, and new young ones. And, and a lot of them just really don't understand the historical importance of unions. And, they, and some of them are so young that they really just don't understand maybe the history of social justice, like in education, like did, maybe they've always assumed that like men and women got paid the same, you know, when that's not always been the case. Maybe they've just always assumed such things about working conditions when they're, you know, contract time versus not contract. And that just hasn't been the case. So a lot of what's driving what's going on with uh, with what I see is like teaching younger teachers about the importance of doing what Rebecca is, is talking about and, and fighting. And But, they, but they've got to learn it. Yeah. Uh, David, you're a youngin, right? Yeah. <laughs> Somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> How do you uh, how do you view union membership? Is what Luann's uh, what she is saying does that resonate a bit? That maybe you come from a generation that didn't necessarily see union membership as a prerequisite or something that was kind of top of mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember specifically with new teacher orientation, a lot of teachers being like, "Well, I'm not going to do that because they're going to take so much money out of my check per month," you know. And there was a little bit of time there where I was like, oh, "I should back out too." And I decided to stay when I started to see their involvement in the social justice movement, fighting for teacher pay, things of that nature. And you realize, you know what, like, these guys have my back. Uh, that echoes, uh, Rebecca, what we actually talked about in June with you and your colleagues in the NEA. I was, I mean, frankly, I would say I was, I was surprised to hear you all say, like, the Janus decision for you just kind of clarified your uh, political mission, that you are, in, instead of maybe backing off of your more... I guess what you might characterize as partisan goals. In fact, you you feel like you are going to be emphasizing those now more. Things like transgender bathrooms and uh, mm-hmm. social justice issues within the classroom, things about race like we were talking about earlier. Like you you feel now, I guess, empowered to, to do that more as a union. Ab- absolutely. I think if we're, if we're not going to stand up for those marginalized groups, for those kids that need us in schools, who will do it? I mean, going into that classroom every day is inherently a democratic and political act. And small d. I agree. A small d. Thank you. And and every decision that's made that affects my classroom is made outside my classroom. And we have to be a part of that conversation. And if we see that with teachers running for office all over the country, becoming involved in elections, becoming involved in the political process. And your union is a way to do that in a way where the issue is education. The party that you belong to is education. 
It's not a big R, big D. It's it's whatever party. The party is about a strong public school because the decisions that, that affect what happens in our classrooms affect what we do yeah. and the kids that, that we're charged with I mean, taking care of. Luann, what do you... What do you want out of your union? I mean, I, I want things that I think other people would want, but, you know, to be paid professionally, to, to you know, to ha- hang on to my benefits, right, to have improved working conditions. But I think as long as the focus stays on, like, what we all want, because thinking I'm going to join this union because it's like, what can I get out of it and focus on benefits to self instead of seeing us as a group – is kind of maybe kind of maybe dangerous. All right. Well, before we get to kids these days, we are uh, road testing a new uh, segment on the new episodes of No Wrong Answers. Uh, just giving you some extra education news stories that caught our eye that didn't necessarily make it into a segment, but we thought were interesting that you would want to know about. So we call it headlines. Uh, we're briefly giving you some education news story headlines for you to ponder and think about or check up on. Um, as you go about your business. So here are some education news stories that caught our eye recently. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Stop the Bleed campaign is seeking to give out nearly $2 million in grants to help schools train students on how to staunch and control traumatic bleeding. A description of the program says Stop the Bleed will help students prepare for mass casualty events, in other words, school shootings. It goes on, quote, similar to how students learn health education and driver's ed, They must learn proper bleeding control, including how to use their hands, dressings, and tourniquets. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved the first-ever generic version of the EpiPen, (laughs) the injectable device used by millions as an emergency treatment for allergic reactions. Sales of EpiPens typically spike around back-to-school time, but due to a shortage, the price of the original EpiPen produced by drug maker Mylan has skyrocketed 400% in recent years. A two-pack can now cost upwards of $600. The hope is a new generic competitor will help lower prices for EpiPens. And a Florida high school teacher battling cancer posted to Facebook that he had run out of sick days to use in order to continue chemotherapy. Within hours, other teachers and school staffers had transferred a total of 75 of their sick days for him to use. The teacher, Robert Goodman, has taught high school history more than 20 years in Palm Beach County, Florida, said he wasn't surprised as he put it to CNN, teachers are always giving all the time. That was the headlines of other education stories we've been following. Coming up, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you do, subscribe, leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days... You're all three back in class. You're getting to know your kids. They're back from summer. Luann, what are your kids into for the beginning of the school year? All right. I will tell you because I found out, right? It was my research project. You have notes. You have notes. You brought the receipts. Okay, so apparently... Justin Bieber got engaged to somebody named Haley Baldwin, and everybody cares about that. So that was a thing that they said, like, we're down with talking about that a lot. And um, two of the Kardashian sisters had a fight. 
if not all three of them, and they're following that as well. Um, but maybe on a slightly more serious uh, note, uh, anybody who's in AP or pre-AP uh, said what we're early into is procrastination on our summer assignment. And and then the kids who were not in AP are like, yeah, we don't even have all our school supplies yet anyway, so like we got to go do that. So Haley Baldwin, Alec Baldwin's niece. Apparently. Yeah. St- Stephen Baldwin's son. Look at you knowing stuff. Why would a person have that information at their disposal? (laughs) Kyle is a font of information. (laughs) Get get your smartphone out. It's not that hard. (laughs) All right, Rebecca, what are your kids into? Well, now I'm just feeling old. School supplies. (laughs) It's back to school. All the crayons are sharp. And the box of 96 is as exciting now as it was 100 years ago. I have a question, though. Are kids like, do they compare? Like, I got the 96 crayons. You got the 64. You got the 60. I mean, is that a thing? It's a big deal. And if you have the metallic sparklies and I don't, there's an <laughs> underground economy running. Wow. The school supplies and whoever invented things that make noise need to not come to school. Backpacks make noise. <laughs> shoes make noise. They blink. They flicker. Wait, wait, backpacks they, make noise? Backpacks, what? which I give you, your R2-D2 backpack should make the R2-D2 noise. I'm all about that. <laughs> but it never stops. And I've turned into Miss Trunchbull up there at the front telling people to stop making noise and sound and lights with your shoes. <laughs> I'm officially old. It's just, that's just wrong. It's a mean thing to do to teachers. And David, what are your kids into? Uh, sports tryouts. Soccer, volleyball, football. Everybody's just really getting into that. So it's, it's been a stretch for a lot of kids, but it keeps them honest. Oh, that time, oh, it keeps them honest because they want to they want to do well in class so that they can continue playing sports. They want to do well so that you don't go tell their coach that they're cutting up. So it's kind of nice. Uh, Speaking of cutting up, I hear your kids in the background. So, uh, David, thanks so much for joining us, even though you had to do some emergency babysitting. Uh, Thanks to Luann and Rebecca here in studio. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, especially at this time of year, the start of a new year, be nice to your teachers.